Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This morning's reading is from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed, enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day and all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken to another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Please be seated. If you're not there already, please turn in your Bibles or... Pull up on your phone, Hebrews chapter 4. We're, we're finishing this section that I started that is just compact with this warning passage, this caution passage. But you've heard it said from this pulpit that sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. I stand by that. Pastor Pat has been sharing that occasionally, and I stand by that. I, I believe in this wholeheartedly, and some of you, I think, feel extra spiritual because you apply this principle on a weekly basis. Right about now, yes. So you know who you are, and I know your wife just jabbed you in the ribs. But we've surveyed 100 people to find the tips and tricks combating insomnia. And the survey says, listening to preaching. Somehow, listening to a monotone middle-aged man has replaced counting sheep or melatonin. So that's what's going on here. And I'm tracking with you because my life verse comes from Psalm 127, verse 2. It reads this. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. What a beautiful verse. It's become my life verse. Go to bed early, sleep in as late as you possibly can, take naps as frequently as possible. 
But honestly, a thread of rest is woven throughout the fabric of Scripture, and it runs from the creation account in Genesis all the way through the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth that we find in the book of Revelation, where when this all concludes, the dwelling place of God is with mankind. So this thread of rest runs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. Rest is built into the rhythm of creation. And it's God himself who sets the tone for rest. He sets the tone for the rest that he invites us into, that we're called into for our joy. God didn't rest because he was exhausted. He didn't rest because he's tired. God rested intentionally to care for us as his creation. This was a tangible way that he chose to care for us. He rested. Unless we think that work is in opposition to rest, these two actually coexisted before the fall. It's only after the fall that work and rest saw a conflict. Both have been hijacked by sin and completely frustrated as a result. So as we're talking about rest here this morning, this is what the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention to. Throughout Scripture, rest is described and it derives itself from the same word family. But in this word family, there's a few different aspects to rest. There's this idea of ceasing from activity. So stop working, laboring, stop toiling. There's also a restorative character to rest, being refreshed. It's a state of rest or peace. We talk about peace quite a bit. Jesus comes in and extends peace, offers peace. It's in his presence we find peace. He actually says that he is our peace. So not only is there a ceasing from activity that's rest or a restorative character or nature to rest, but rest can also be a place, a location. For example, the promised land was to be a place of rest. Or what we talked about just a minute ago, that one day it will culminate in the presence of God. And it's in his presence that we find rest. And then finally, we come to the final rest. Scripture speaks of death and of the believer calls it sleep. And so this is the word family that is describing rest within Scripture. The problem we have is that we don't know how to slow down. We are a culture of workaholics. When we actually do find ourselves with some free time, what do we do? We fill it with more work. We fill it with other forms of busyness, and we do that for a variety of reasons. We really struggle with this concept of rest, and we don't want to feel unproductive. That's not a bad thing, all in all. But it's when we can't pump the brakes a little bit and even catch our breath. We don't want to feel unproductive. We don't want to feel lazy. And so we fail to rest. We often feel guilty when our list isn't crossed off quickly enough. I'm a list maker. I love organization. I create lists sometimes just so I can check things off. And I'm like, oh, wait, that wasn't on my list. I already did it. doesn't matter. Add it so I can cross it off. All right? If that doesn't happen quickly enough, we just keep at it. 
and we don't know how to just slow down. Ultimately, keeping busy allows us to avoid other responsibilities that we don't want to do. Keeping busy also allows us to avoid maybe tough relationships that we struggle with. It also allows us to avoid just realities that we don't want to face. What happens when you're alone for five minutes and there's, there's silence? It's just you and your thoughts. That can be a scary place to be at times. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know the, the deep, dark recesses. I don't know the struggles, the temptations, the fears, the worries, the anxiety, the depression. There's a lot of different things that, that factor in and push in on us. And so for us to actually slow down long enough to rest, these things can creep in, overwhelm, and overrun us. And so the best thing that we do is just try to stay busy. But ultimately and mostly, why don't we rest or why do we struggle with rest or having a good theology of rest is because we simply refuse to trust God regarding rest. When we boil it all down, it's ultimately that. If we rest, we believe that we're not going to accomplish everything that we need to accomplish. We put that weight and pressure on us. We have deadlines that are self-imposed and self-created. Sometimes we have real deadlines. But we want to get X, Y, and Z done. And so if we rest, we're not going to accomplish that thing. We don't believe that rest is productive. We struggle to believe that rest is productive. Needless to say, we rarely, if ever, schedule intentional times to rest, to slow down, to catch our breath. This is a built-in weekly opportunity for us to collectively, individually, personally, but then corporately to catch our breath. And even this time is hijacked right now. Your thoughts are running to lunch, what's going on this afternoon, what's going on this evening, this week, this month. Time just keeps scrolling and deadlines don't stop and family pressures don't cease and we have all of this that's competing for this time right now. And it's very challenging for us. Ultimately, we don't really value rest. That's really what it comes down to. We forget that we're creature. We're not the creator. We need sleep. We need rest. We need Sabbath. God does not. We're thankful that we find in Scripture that the one that we worship never sleeps, never tires, never takes time off. He did that once to set a pattern for us. But He's the one who's watching over all of this when we sleep. Sleep is actually declaring dependence on God, resting, taking a break, being intentional with that, working hard and then resting intentionally is really declaring dependence on God. Rest is an exercise in trust. There's a great little book by Christopher Ashe. It's called Zeal Without Burnout. I just stole that phrase from him. But it's a great little resource to remind us of this place that we're in as created beings. We're not God. Rest is an exercise of trust. So what was the original intent of rest? What was the original intent of rest? 
What's an intentional day set aside weekly to worship and rest? Worship and rest. That's what a day like today is comprised of and made up of. It's meant to know and enjoy God. It's meant to be in this creation. What we end up doing is when we reject rest, we tend to worship the creation rather than just be in this creation and worship God and rest for our joy. Another side to rest. Now, we could really do a whole series, a a theology of rest. We're not able to do that here this morning, but I do want to draw our attention to this other side of rest to consider is that of the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. So the Sabbath existed from the beginning. Remember, after six days, God took the seventh day and he rested. That was intentional. That was for us, not for himself. So day seven, the fourth commandment was given to the nation of Israel as part of their constitution. Remember, Israel is given a bunch of laws, commandments. The ten are the preamble to their constitution. Remember, this nation was a nation that was in slavery. They left Egypt. They're becoming a new nation, and they have to learn what that looks like, and God gives them these rules, these laws to follow, and that's their constitution. The ten are the preamble for that. And the fourth commandment is is this really cool thing. And in this, Israel is to be setting aside one day a week, taking a break from the daily grind, taking a break to worship, taking a break to rest. This posture of rest was one way that they were to set an example to the surrounding nations. This is what it looks like to worship God. This is what it looks like to trust God. So they were to be an example to the surrounding nations. And one of those ways was through rest, taking a break, trusting God. In addition to the weekly Sabbath, they had feast days that were built into the cycle and the rhythm of their annual calendar. So they would take more time. They would go to Jerusalem and they would take more time to rest, take more time to worship. They would be with family. And it was intentional, it was built in to their normal cycle of their calendar year. They would celebrate the goodness and faithfulness of God. And then every seventh year, what were they to do with the land? Allow that to rest. Giving the land rest. Now, this is crazy. This was another reminder for them to trust God and worship Him alone. But this is an agricultural society primarily. What an act of faith. Allowing your way of livelihood to just take a break. Year seven, we have to trust that all the provision that God's given us in year six is going to carry forward into year seven. This was an act of faith. And if that wasn't enough, we have the year of Jubilee. Now you have the celebratory cycle of seven sevens, and this was to be celebrated in year 50. There's a whole lot more that we could say about the year of Jubilee, but ultimately God established Even just through this little snippet, God established a beautiful rhythm of rest for the nation of Israel, which they completely rejected. If you read through the Old Testament and you even read into the Gospels, into the New Testament, they refuse to believe God every seventh year. How do we know that? Because they never let the land rest. 
When they refused to let the land rest, they were doubting God. They weren't trusting God. They weren't believing God. They rejected the year of Jubilee entirely. I don't know if we have any record of them actually celebrating the year of Jubilee. But what we do see on a regular basis is how they turned the weekly Sabbath into a legalistic nightmare. It was anything but worshipful or restful. It was rule upon rule, law upon law. It was micromanaging. It was controlling. It wasn't restful at all. And so where does that leave us? Completely exhausted. Tired. I came into this day tired. And now we hear about, it's just, we reject rest at all costs, and this just leaves us completely exhausted. We don't value rest. We don't know how to rest. We don't believe God regarding rest. Rest finds a home with the other four-letter words that we look down on. That's how we treat rest. We relegate it to these other four-letter words, and we're just like, hmm. It's cringeworthy, but that's how we treat it. We might talk nice about it. We might long for it. But typically, when you have any kind of interaction with anybody, you say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on? And they're just like, I'm tired. I'm busy. I'm overloaded. We're stressed. Well, no wonder. I mean, we have information overload. We're running at Mach 3. We don't know how to even slow down and catch our breath. And so the fact that you've chosen to carve out time and prioritize this, what a blessing. This is meant to be refreshing, right-sizing, refueling, recharging. And so keep prioritizing this time of the gathering. Keep prioritizing this time to catch our breath, to be reminded of the sufficiency of the gospel. The text that we're in is a warning, it's a caution not to reject the rest of God. The promise of rest still remains for the people of God. The promise of rest is still on the table. Rest is available. The exhortation in this text comes across as a sobering reminder not to forfeit the rest of God, not to fail to reach that rest. The rest in this text is more than just the tangible, I need a break from my work family, relationships, stresses, pressures, agendas, busyness. You fill in the blank. It's more than just this temporal idea of catching our breath. The warning is don't forfeit the eternal rest of God. There is a rest that's on the table. That rest is extended to all who believe. Don't fail to reach it. Don't reject it. So the exhortation here in this passage is to believe the good news. Let's be reminded of what was read already in chapter 4 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they, did not, they were not united by faith with those who listened. 
For we who have believed enter that rest. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. There's a contrast going on in this text. Now the text mentions this idea of good news. The good news and promised rest are one and the same. The good news in the original is the word euangelizo. It's often translated gospel. So the good news here in this text, it's used twice. It's used in verse 2. It's used in verse 6. Good news is the gospel. Now, the grammatical structure is always important. You hear us harping about structure, and you hear us harping about context, and we talk about some of these different nuances because this matters, right? You could come here, and on a Sunday morning, we could pull out some verse and give you some long talk about, you know, X, Y, and Z, and then try to get you to comply to it. Well, we believe that context matters. We believe that the grammatical structure matters. Now, you didn't come here for a grammar lesson, but sometimes it's really important for us to slow down, catch our breath, and actually think through the grammar because we don't intrinsically hear what the original audience heard or grasp what they would have grasped or feel the weight of a passage because we're not immersed in it the same way. The language works a little bit differently from Greek to English. So it's important for us to slow down just for a moment, and it's worth noting that the good news in this text is the gospel, and it's presented for us in a perfect passive participle. You're like, ah perfect passive participle. You know, you know I'm not a super smart guy. We keep the cookies where we can reach them, right? And so it's, it's important for us just to slow down right now and have a short English lesson, a grammar lesson, because this is important so we can feel the weight of this good news. We can feel the weight of the gospel. In the perfect tense, it describes a completed action. It occurred in the past but has produced this state of being. There are results that exist in the present because of this action. So the gospel, we respond to the the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. What he has provided for us has impacted us. And it's stated here in the, the perfect tense, This past action that has happened to us has created this present reality in which we live. There is a present state of being because of the gospel that has happened. The emphasis is not as much on the past action, but it's on the present state of being. So where you are because of the gospel, the impact that it's had on you, the effect, the reality of that is what the emphasis of this good news is on. You respond to the gospel in faith, and it has intrinsic merit. There is impact to your life in time and space, and it's a present reality. Now, it's also important to notice that this was in the passive voice, and that's always a reminder that we are recipients of this gospel. We have received. Ephesians 2 talks about the grace. This this gospel has been given to us 
and we receive this faith. We receive faith to believe. We receive this gift of the gospel. It's ours, not because we've merited it. It's not because we've worked for it. It's not because we've done something. We're recipients of this. So put simply, we are experiencing the lavish benefits of the gospel that we have received. We have received this gospel, and now we live in the reality of this gospel. The present reality of the good news has transformed our lives. Rest is ours. So the contrast presented in this passage could not be clearer. There are really two groups of people that have encountered the good news in this text. Some, everyone has heard the good news, and some have responded in faith. They've received it. They enter the rest of God. Others who have rejected this good news, they've not received it, forfeit this rest. That's really what's going on. We see that all, this all throughout the Scriptures. The people who have encountered this message... Depending on the response, there are two drastically different results. The message that they heard didn't benefit them. This is what the text says. We've heard the good news of the gospel. The good news that they heard didn't benefit them. Why? It wasn't received in faith. They rejected it. They didn't believe God. We have believed the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the message. And as a result, the text reminds us that we are recipients of this rest. We will enter this rest. Rest is ours because Jesus is ours. Rest is ours because Jesus is ours. Rest is not a reality because there's no hardship, no trial, no tough circumstances. It's not the absence of danger or work or stress. Rest is wrapped up in a person and in the presence of Jesus. Rest is ours. You're like, hey, I came to faith in Christ, I believe in Jesus, and nothing's changed in my life. I still have the same relationship, family pressures. I still have the same work-related pressures. And now on top of it, I'm getting flack because I believe in Jesus. Think of the context of who this letter was written to. Persecuted church. A church whose circumstances actually intensified because they believed in Jesus. And now he's talking about this idea and concept of rest. It seems to be somewhat paradoxical. Because we only think in the tangible. We want rest in the here and now, in the present. And the reality is on the horizontal, we may or may not be experiencing a season of rest. But it's only a season. There is a rest that this text is talking about. And it's not to be experienced fully in this life. It's to be experienced fully in the next. And we long for that day. So the exhortation in our text revolves around this contrast. And it's really a sobering reality check to consider how will we respond to Jesus. It seems really straightforward that there's really only two groups of people, that there's those who confess Jesus by faith 
and those who reject Jesus as their confession. So in the context of what we're speaking of, in chapter 3, 1 through 5, 10, we have Jesus as our confession. And the warning here is there's two groups of people. There are some who we've been exposed to the good news. There's some who respond in faith and receive it and enter his rest. And some who reject it. And they fail to enter the promised rest of God. We've seen this all throughout Scripture. Matthew is, is full of it. There's a wide gate and a narrow gate. There's wheat and there's weeds growing up at the same time. There's sheep and there's goats, and they'll be separated on the last day. All throughout, the Scripture speaks to this. And so it's no wonder that the author of Hebrews is writing of the same idea. As we continue to move through this text, let's consider verses 6 through 10. Not only we're exhorted to believe the good news, we're exhorted to receive the good news. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, we've heard this quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words that he's already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The exhortation throughout this entire section is an appeal to receive the good news of the gospel by faith, which results in rests. The entire, the entire appeal throughout this entire section is to receive the good news of the gospel, to receive the good news of Jesus by faith, which results in rest. Some will believe and enter. Others who are exposed to the exact same gospel will reject it. They won't respond in faith, and they'll refuse to believe Jesus as their confession. And by doing so, they will forfeit that rest. Failure to enter rest is a direct result of their disobedience. And what is that disobedience? In verse 6, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news, they failed to enter it because of disobedience. What is that disobedience in verse 6? It's the same thing that we saw earlier in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Hebrews three eighteen. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He connects disobedience and unbelief in this passage. And as we're going to see, and we need to be reminded of all throughout Hebrews, this idea of sin and disobedience is unbelief. It's not this, whatever list of sins you struggle with. He's calling his audience to believe Jesus, to respond in faith, to receive this rest. Don't disobey and reject. And he keeps using the nation of Israel as an example. He keeps setting them up and say, see, 
They rejected God. They failed to believe him. And as a result, there were certain consequences. Now the stakes are much higher. We're talking eternal rest. So here in this passage, David's already been quoted in Psalm 95. We took some time to look at Psalm 95. And now he's re-quoted. And the offer of rest is on the table. And the emphasis on this is today. The weight of this reality is we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're hearing the message today. You're hearing the gospel today. You're hearing the good news of Jesus today. How will you respond? The good news of Jesus is extended to you today. Believe that Jesus is God's final message of hope and life. Jesus is God's word made flesh. We saw that already in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters. Why? So that he could come and taste death for us. So that he could live the sinless life that we could never live. That he could die as our substitute in our place. And that he could make reconciliation between God and man. The wrath of God is appeased. And now rest is on the table. Rest is ours. Rest is offered to us. Jesus is the answer to our sin and death problem. Jesus is the answer for the separation from God. We're very religious. We're a very spiritual people, and we know that as we look around globally, there's a, a gazillion different religions and ways that we choose to worship whether it's through some sort of a religious thing or through sports or through food or through relationship, you fill in the blank. We're trying to fill this void that only Jesus can and the offers on the table to this audience. And why to the church? Why does the author of Hebrews write this to the church? It's because sprinkled in all throughout, mostly believers, there are unbelievers present in the context of Hebrews. Guess what? The same is true today. There's unbelievers sprinkled in throughout. You know, I don't know if you're, you you drag your kids to Sunday after Sunday, you make them go to Sunday school, they plop in here for the service and they're bored. I don't know if they're believing or unbelieving. I have, I'm the oldest of four. We all went to church all our life. That's all I've known. My dad came to faith in Christ when he was, you know, 19. I came along when he was 20. So we grew up in this context where he's immersed in the text of Scripture. He's learning. He's leading Awana so that he can learn the Bible verses with the kids. And he's just growing. And it's in this greenhouse. And all of his kids are brought up. And for me, by all accounts, it seems like this message has taken. Right? I believed it. I responded in faith. I don't know if that's true for my other three siblings. I have no idea. But looking at their life, I could say... I really don't know, and it's not for me to make the final judgment on that. Remember, that's God's call. But we're all in the same context. We are all present in church. We all heard the gospel a million times, prayed a prayer, made a profession. What's real belief, heart belief? Romans talks about that. It's with our hearts we believe, and it's with our mouth that we make confession. And what is our confession? It's Jesus. And how do we know that it's, it's real? keep believing. He's still the confession. Today is Jesus the confession. 
It's not, did I pray the right prayer? Did I say the right thing? Did I believe enough? It's never about that. It's never about the amount of faith. It's about the object of our faith. Is Jesus the one that we're looking to? doesn't matter how I feel about my performance. What matters is, do I believe Jesus? Jesus only. That's what's going on in this text. Jesus became like us so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, including you, including me. That's what Hebrews 2.9 says. We, we're like, we love grace and we talk about grace. We forget that grace is one-sided. We didn't earn it because then it's not grace. We didn't merit it. We don't somehow maintain it. And yet this text talks about in Hebrews 2.9 says, but we see him. We see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Don't miss this. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for us. He became sin for us, 2 Corinthians says, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange. And that's what the author of Hebrews has on the table. Today, if you hear his voice, you can hear the appeal. You can feel the weight of the appeal. Today, if you're sitting under the sound of my voice and you've come Sunday after Sunday and you're just like, yeah, my wife drags me here or yeah, my parents drag me here or yeah, I don't... Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Believe. The text goes on to make it abundantly clear that the promised rest... The rest that God promised Israel was what? We call it the promised land. It was a place. It was tangible. But that promised land was merely a shadow pointing to a better rest. So the promised land was shadow pointing to substance. There was a better rest that was on the table. There was always a better rest envisioned. I told you we'd be talking about numbers last week. Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers 13, the spies are sent on a recon mission throughout the land of Canaan. They're in there 40 days. They're scouring the land. They're making notes. There's 12 of these spies, one representative from each of the tribes. If you've not read Numbers 13 and 14, I would encourage you to go do that at some point to get the whole gist of what's going on. But on this recon mission, they are looking at the land. They're surveying these things. They're scouting the produce. This land is impressive. It is just awesome. They come back with the report. So now all the congregation, all the nation of Israel is here for this report. And they're like, this land that God's bringing us to is impressive. You've got to see it to believe it. Here's a little bit of it. You know, they dump this whole cluster of grapes down and everyone's like, but like this land is everything that they hoped for, right? And think of where they came from. Egypt, slavery. Egypt's a big sandbox. They were having to make bricks. They were forced labor. And now this land is impressive. They're like, yes, we've been waiting for this. But there was a caveat. There was a however. There was a 
but. They say, uh, here's the thing. The inhabitants are formidable. Their cities are massive. They're fortified. They're impressive. The people there, they're like giants. And we felt like grasshoppers before them. It was like we were just sneaking around, hoping to go undetected, unnoticed. The land is great, but this is an impossible mission. This is just too much. So the report being primarily negative and foreboding, what ends up happening? Casts a dark cloud over everything. They're on the verge. They're on the precipice. They're on the cusp of entering this land and claiming it as their own. This was really a short run from the Exodus until now. And God's done a ton of miracles in between. And they're on the verge of claiming this thing, believing God and entering the land. And the report comes back and it's primarily negative. And how the people respond? Poorly. Despite Joshua and Caleb's best efforts to say, no, we got this thing. Let's go. Let's take it at once. God's going to come through on what he promised. The people fail to trust God. Numbers 14 actually documents their rebellious response. They rejected God's invitation He's offering them the gift of this rest, and it comes in the form of land. And here's how they respond. Listen to Numbers 14, starting in verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. That's a cheery thought, isn't it? Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Remember all along we've been pulling up examples of them going, what are you, bring us out here to kill us? And now this continues to be their response. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? Hmm. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back. So sad. This is the human response. It's a natural response. But listen to how God responded to them in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11 says, And Yahweh said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? God's just, I mean, in human language, and this is what we have, we have a way that we can you know, try to grasp and understand what God's communicating with Moses. I've had it. This is enough. I have shown myself faithful and merciful, providing and doing the miraculous over and over and over again. And every time they push back, they've grumbled, they've responded poorly, they've rejected me, they despise me, they refuse to trust me. They are rebellious at heart. And so Moses 
does what Moses does. He intercedes for the people. This is always shocking for me, just sobering. Time and time again, Moses is the target of the grumbling and complaining so many of the times. Why? Because he's the tangible leader that they can see. They can't take a swing at God, but they can take a swing at Moses, and so they do. And every time, Moses goes to God, and he intercedes on their behalf. Shocking. And when Moses intercedes, what does he do? He appeals to God, to his name, to God's nature, to God's character, to God's attributes, to the reputation of God. And that's what you see taking place in Numbers 14, 13 through 19. Moses making an appeal to God based on God himself. It's not about the people. It's about God. And God responds. And he responds by both pardoning and punishing. He has to deal with sin, and he does. And those who rejected him, there's a a consequence on the horizontal. And ultimately, they're going to face this 40 years of wilderness wandering because of their unbelief. And yet his pardon to not wipe them out completely is merciful and gracious. So they continue to reject God. They refuse to believe him. And their punishment for rejecting God's on display in Numbers 14, verses 26 through 38. We won't read the whole thing, but here's the highlight reel. Here's what God leads with. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. I, Yahweh, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. The very thing that they were fearing didn't happen. The opposite was going to happen. They're like, oh, our wives and our kids are going to be a prey. You know, they're going to be the spoils of war, and that doesn't look pretty. And instead, they're the ones that actually inherit the land. It's the kids. So the people reject the promised land. The people rejected the rest that God offered to them. And in this text, in verse 8, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Ultimately, then, 40 years later, Joshua, one of the spies who spied out the land, Joshua and Caleb, actually get to go in and enter that land. They go through the the 40 years of wilderness wandering, camping out in the desert, and now they're on the verge of actually taking the land. And as Joshua leads them into this land of promise 40 years later, this is still only a glimpse of something far better. The land was just a shadow. What we see all throughout the Old Testament is a promise that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus accomplished everything that was prophesied, that was pictured, that was patterned, that was promised in the Old Testament. What the nation experienced under Joshua was a shadow. What we experience under Jesus is the substance. And still, the best is yet to come. We have just a foretaste of the reality of this rest. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have a reality of the peace of God indwelling us. 
And we have peace because of this person, Jesus. And yet, the best is yet to come. There is still a Sabbath for the people of God. A Sabbath still awaits. We want that peace right now, in the here and now. Because we can only see the tangible. We can only wrap our mind around the thing that we can see is that problem going away and me having whatever my definition of rest and peace is here and now. And yet, there's something better that's on the table. There's something better that awaits us and we have a hard time processing it. The passage that was read for our call to worship, kind of read from Matthew 11, and Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Can you imagine the appeal going out and a weary, tired people are going, yeah, I want that rest. I don't want to work another day in my life. He's not offering them the rest from work, toil, labor. He's not offering them retirement. He's not offering them just to come out under the weight of whatever they were experiencing. He's offering them something better. It's very similar to what we see in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. What did Jesus offer her? He, he offers her the same thing. He just does it in a different way. He says, if you knew who was speaking to you and the gift of God, you would actually have asked me and I would give you living water. And she's like, oh yes, please, I want that. I'll take that. Why? Because she doesn't want to come and draw water again because of the lifestyle she's lived and the stigma that comes. And she's like, man, if I don't ever have to draw water again, awesome. And he's like, you're missing it. You're only thinking of the tangible. The water that I have to give is eternal. The rest that I have to give is more than tangible, physical. It's eternal. Listen to what we're going to come across later in Hebrews. Hebrews 11 is a, a passage that we have kind of treated memorializing all these people. We call it the Hall of Faith, and we're like, oh, look at all these people that God did some cool things through, and we romanticize this whole list. But man, that's a, a graphic dark list. If we go back into the Old Testament and read the stories about these people's lives, it was crazy. And all these people believe God. They're in this section because they chose to believe no matter what the circumstances they were facing. They chose to believe no matter what they were feeling, the pressures that they were under. Life was not easy. And yet they're in here, and some of them were, it wasn't really cheery. We read this, and we only focus on the first half of it. But some suffered mocking. Some were tortured. Some were imprisoned. They refused to not be stoned. Like, these guys were, it was dark. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. This is crazy. It talks about how they were destitute. They were nomads. All because they believed the promise of God. And this is what's interesting. As the author of Hebrews is writing for, to this people who are persecuted, a church that's persecuted, and he's saying, here's why all of these have responded in faith. Look at, listen to verses 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, 
they should not be made perfect. This rest that is offered, this rest that's on the table, this rest that is to be received by faith, all of these people believed the promise, and yet they didn't get to see the reality of the promise. Why? Look around the room. Because God was allowing us to be a part of that promise too. That promise rest still awaits, and there is coming a day when all of this will be done away with. There is coming a day when we will receive and live in that Sabbath rest. We long for that day. Revelation speaks of that day. It's a day when the dwelling place of God is with mankind. This comes from Revelation 21. When the dwelling place, the presence of God is with mankind, when heaven and earth will be one, when God will dwell with them as their God and we will be his people, when all tears are wiped away and death will be no more and mourning and crying and pain will be forever finished because the former things have passed away. There is waiting a day. There is coming a day when we will live in the reality of this rest. But until that day, the appeal is don't reject this rest. The exhortation as we wrap up this text is to enter that rest. Verse 11 says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. You can put an asterisk by disobedience and write the word unbelief. So don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. Don't fall by the same sort of unbelief. Don't reject this message. Strive to enter this rest. So the the final exhortation is to enter the promised rest of God. It's almost like you can, you know, let us strive to enter that rest. You can almost hear the echo from Caleb back in Numbers saying, let us go up and take it at once. God promised it. I believe it. Let's do this thing. All throughout Hebrews so far, we've been encouraged to listen to God's final word to us as mankind. Listen to his final word through his son, Jesus. We've been encouraged to see Jesus as this word of rest, to consider Jesus as the high priest of our confession, and now to strive to enter that rest. There is rest for the weary. There is hope for the hopeless. There is a promised rest for the people of God. Do not reject it. Do not fall short of reaching it through disobedience. This disobedience is unbelief. You can see it again in Hebrews 3.18, in chapter 4, verse 6, and now in verse 11. And so this section of warning, this section of caution, it wraps up with a very sobering reality that we will be held accountable for how we responded to Jesus. Listen to verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's absolutely no hiding from the word of God. And while this 
verse is typically used to describe the scriptures. I've only heard it used to describe the word of God is living and powerful. And it is. And this is not, not saying that. But the nuance of this text is not highlighting the written word. It's highlighting Jesus, the word made flesh from John 1, it's, which is accented here in Hebrews 2, 14 and following. And here it says, Jesus is that visual embodiment on display. The word of God, Jesus is the living an active word of God. He is able to penetrate the inner recesses of our hearts and minds. There is no escaping or hiding from the place before the one to whom we will give an account. All throughout Scripture, we're reminded that Jesus is the one before whom every knee will bow and tongue will confess. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Romans 3, it says, we are all held accountable to Jesus Listen to Revelation 1. It's just an impressive description of Jesus. And then it comes down to saying, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, come. Jesus is God's final word to humanity. And therefore, the appeal is, listen and believe Jesus. Now, the striving in this text seems like somewhat of a contradiction. But all throughout Scripture, and here this striving, the hard work for the believer is to do what? It's believe. Keep believing. Hold fast. Why? Because in times of pressure and persecution, it's very easy, I can imagine... I'm not, I've not been in it, right? We speak of things that we know nothing of. I've not lived in a context where I am fearful to name the name of Christ because I don't know what's going to happen when I turn the corner. Who's going to rat me out? What's going on? And that could be a family member kind of a thing, right? We don't know that context. We have a very small theology of suffering. It's up here. It's not in here. We read about it. We pray for the persecuted church, but we really have no way to wrap our mind around what they're really experiencing and facing. And so in that context, you can imagine it'd be really easy to denounce the name of Christ. And the author of Hebrews saying, believe and keep believing. And that's what's going on all throughout the scriptures. Just a couple of reminders that that's what this striving to enter his rest is. It's believe and keep believing. When Jesus was asked point blank in John chapter 6, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Later in 1 John, John writes something very similar. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, 
God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before him. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. So what is keeping his commandments and doing what's pleasing him? The next verse answers that. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. The hard work for the believer is to believe and keep believing. The appeal to strive to enter into his rest is to believe and to keep believing. The appeal in Hebrews is to listen to God's final word to those who would rebel against it. It's to see the grace and mercy on display through the sacrificial death of Jesus. It's to consider the Son's faithfulness on our behalf as the high priest of our confession. And then this leads us right into our study next week where we're going to be invited to draw near to God in bold assurance, in bold confidence, because Jesus is our sympathetic and merciful and gracious high priest. That's what this whole section is about. Listen to Jesus, see Jesus, consider Jesus, and now draw near to Jesus. So the immediate application from this section is to believe Jesus and enter his rest. The author of Hebrews is warning those who would be present, those who would hear, those who would be part of the gathering of the believing community and yet not be saved. So let's be reminded of the invitation from Jesus' own words that we heard a couple times this morning from the call to worship forward. Here's what Jesus is inviting you to. If you do not know him as your Lord and Savior, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Will you believe Jesus? Will you respond in faith? Will you realize you can't do anything to merit, maintain, fix this? And yet Jesus says, come to me. I've done it. I've done all the heavy lifting. You yoke up with me and you will find rest for your souls. And then to the believer present, the hard work for you is to believe. Like, just tell me what to do. I just did. We don't like that because it's not something we can check off our list. Remember, I'm a list maker. You know, I want to cross these things off. I'm a list, a list follower. I'm a rule follower. I am like, I want that thing. And yet the hard work for us is not make the list and check this thing off. The hard work is to believe and keep believing that Jesus is everything. We don't enter rest by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. If you pick up the manuscript, there's a few more passages for you to explore for further study. Maybe it's in your outline as well if you just grab that. But there's some further passages within their greater context for you to go, wait a second, Jesus did all the work. Now I can rest. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for doing all the heavy lifting for us. You've done the work that was sufficient. You lived the completely sinless life that we could never live. We could never merit salvation. We could never do enough, be enough, try hard enough. And yet the invitation isn't to 
try harder, do better. The invitation is to come to you who's done it all and believe that what you have done is sufficient. Thank you for the rest that you have secured for us. Thank you for the rest that you have invited us into. I pray that on a weekly basis that this would be a glimpse, a foretaste, just even in shadow form, a taste of the rest that is to come. Continue to work in our midst. There may be some here that really don't know you. They're part of this community for whatever reason. Family members drug them here or they just think religion's a a good thing to be a part of. Um, I don't know. You do. And I pray that today they wouldn't harden their hearts but instead respond in faith to the invitation that's offered to them. That they'd have the boldness and courage to seek one of us out to share more with them about this gospel, this good news. Jesus, you are everything to us. So I pray that we would continue to worship you through belief. In Christ's name, amen.